And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Among the many names that surface uh, when people start playing the conjecture game about 2020 is Governor Jay Inslee of Washington, a former member of Congress, a successful governor, now head incoming of the Democratic Governors Association, and one of the leading voices in the country on the issue of climate change. I was in Seattle recently and sat down with the governor to talk about that and many other things. Governor Jay Inslee, it's so good to be with you here in uh, in the great state of Washington in Seattle. We love having David Axelrod in the house. Good, <laughs> good news in the state of Washington. Now, there have been a lot of Inslees in the state of Washington for a very long time, right? This we've, is now, we've you didn't around. migrate here. No, I, we love migrants, and that's why I'm so uh, infuriated about the DACA decision <laughs> by the president today. We'll, but get, I, we'll get to I that. I can't claim to be one. Good pivot, but we'll get to well, it. Well, <laughs> we're, we're eager. I know we're, we all yeah. have uh, high feelings about this. No, I'm fifth generation state of Washington, so we've been here uh, quite a while, and uh, I love this state, and we've loved it for a long time. Tell me about, you grew up here in the Seattle Area? Yeah, an old Seattle boy, went to high school, uh, married my high school sweetheart, my mom and dad, and my mom uh, was a homemaker and worked at Sears and was an artist. My dad was a teacher and coach and a very beloved coach. And and, and you uh, were an athlete. Yes, were. I, I noticed you emphasized were somehow in that Yeah, that verb. was probably not the most... Uh, <laughs> I, played, I played high delicate school ball. Delicate way of putting it. I played high school ball. We had some... Good teams, won a state championship, which was, uh, you know, the highlight of my life. And what, right behind, what right behind your, my what, marriage. What was your role? Uh, my role is to not foul up and steal the inbound pass with one second to go. So anything in the politics old, old, really uh, – Havlicek. Uh, uh, yes. I, I, somehow Inslee steals the ball is not as famous as <laughs> Havlicek steals the ball. But in we'll your mind, it, it probably in is. In my mind, in the Inslee household, it certainly is. <laughs> we start every dinner with that, sir, with that statement. And uh, was it – um, was public service, was politics, like, on your mind from no, the beginning? No, no, no. Uh, maybe public service in a broad sense. My mom and dad were public servants. My dad was a great teacher and coach. They both they worked on the slopes of Mount Rainier teaching kids how to restore alpine meadows. You know, we were always very outdoor-oriented, and they were very oriented to protecting our state. So public service writ large, but not politics. I, I really didn't think in these terms at all till I was in my late 30s, and Trudy and I uh, got uh, upset because we finally passed a school bond on the seventh try because we were going to have to double shift our schools, our high school. And then as soon as we passed it through kind of a miracle, uh, the chowder heads in the legislature cut the funding formula in half. So I got angry about that, and sometimes that's a good motivator. So I decided instead of throw rocks from the outside, I ran for the legislature and and won a Republican red district, and the rest is history, as they say, over in central Washington, in so Yakima Valley. You, uh, you, uh, uh, we were just talking the other day to uh, your senior senator, uh, Patty Murray, whose story, of course, is different but similar in the sense that she was incensed by something the legislature was doing, and that led her on a path that she didn't expect uh, to, uh, uh, to public service. You, but you, you were a lawyer. You practiced law. Yeah, I, I practiced law. And by the way, what so kind of law? 
I was a trial lawyer, so mm-hmm. I did a lot of uh, litigation, some uh, personal injury, some products liability, some business litigation of a dimension. But before we leave our senior senator, I got to yes. tell you, I'm I'm the number one fan of Senator Patty Murray. That's who you're referring to. Yes. She came in. She was a, a PTA mom, if you will, and decided to do something about schools. And we actually ran the same year in '88. Uh, and she is doing such great work for us right now. I love what she's doing in the Congress. Yeah, uh, and uh, no, she's she she is um, she is a very authentic. She uh, is what you voice. want to design as a U.S. senator. She's been there for two decades and still has the common touch. She's still a daughter of Bothell, Washington. She combines the fiber and strength of a warrior with the grace of a person who's now doing bipartisan work to try to get some bipartisan improvements to the health care bill. I know that she did great work on the education bill. Yeah. You really could not design a senator uh, better than her. Yeah. You you know, you wonder when you hear her story whether um, – whether it would be as possible today, just given the enormous amount of money in our politics. And uh, I mean, well, she I, really built a grassroots organization, but she came to it with no personal resources. And I, I still believe that's possible. We see it happening. Outsiders are winning. To some degree, the lust for outsiders has perhaps opened a door for, for spirited yeah. folks. Because Donald won, Trump is a different kind of outsider. Different kind of outsider. I, but I won, and, you know, I beat a Republican mayor in a, one of the most heavily red districts in the western United States, coming out of nowhere because I had a message uh, that resonated with the, with my neighbors. So you can still do that. I won an upset in Congress uh, in 1992. I beat a Republican in 1998. And uh, one of the only two Republicans beat that year as incumbents because – uh, uh, I was uh, optimistic. So if you bring a little optimism and a heck of a lot of shoe leather and energy, you, you can still get in these positions. You, uh, you mentioned uh, 92, um, and you got uh, elected in 92 and mm-hmm. defeated uh, in 94. Um, talk about that and uh, sort of what, what led to your, uh, your defeat uh, doing a good job this is why I was defeated. Now, it sounds a little bit ironic, but I believe it's the case. Uh, I represented a very uh, red Republican area, uh, a small town in central Washington, the Yakima Valley. I lived in Sela, Washington, which I loved. I grew hay and three feral boys in the sagebrush and had a great life. Um, but in 94, we did some things that took a, a little gumption, a little spine, and were a bit controversial. And the one that most people would point to as being uh, pivotal in my defeat is, is I provided uh, one of the final votes for the assault weapon ban. Something your opponent no, undoubtedly reminded he, voters he, of from he time did, to time. He did, including the entire NRA and the entire combined establishment of the Republican Party. But I really believed it was the right decision then. I believe it was the right decision now. Uh, I have not regretted that vote for common sense gun uh, safety legislation for a heartbeat because I do believe it's the right policy uh, then and now. So it is, it is painful to lose. I have to tell you, I've had you know, a couple injuries. I've been pretty lucky that way. But yeah, I was going to ask I've about that. I've been beat you, around, but, but, you, but you, that was painful. You stole the ball and won the championship. <laughs> you, you won an improbable race uh, in, in 92. Um, how do you process defeat well, I, you know, I, I didn't look at it as failure. I looked at it as a, the other guy got more votes. 
I never felt Not personal rejection. No, I did never felt personally uh, injured or personally rejected in that sense. I felt that uh, the best way I could categorize it is that you know I was really good rocky road, but the voters were looking for vanilla that year, and so I never felt diminished by it. Uh, and I, as I said, pretty unusual. Some people are pretty devastated. You, no. you, you know a lot of politicians. No, I didn't. And maybe because I lost a few games in my youth that so you get back, suit up, you know, lace them up and get back in the court. So that's how I felt. Now, it was very painful being um, sort of unengaged productive, uh, from a productivity standpoint for some period of time because it does, you know, slow you down as to what you're doing. And the phone didn't ring for a long time. So that's painful. But again, because it happened, because I was passionate about an issue and because I had conviction about it and did what I believe was right, I, I never felt that that was a bad decision one iota. And I guess, you know, to some degree as governor is the, the best state in the whole country, it, to some degree it's worked out. You, uh, you came back, as you point out, and you went back uh, to Congress, but you went back from a different district. Explain what happened. Well, we, uh, we, we, did, we went back to uh, Western Washington. Trudy and I grew up in Western Washington. Yes. We'd had two decades growing our, raising our kids, uh, you know, in the apple orchards and the hay fields. We decided to try something different, so we went to a little island west of Seattle, Bainbridge Island. Yeah, I was there the other day. It's a beautiful place. Yeah. A beautiful place. We wish I, the ash wasn't falling on it right now, but it's a beautiful place. How about the tourists? They fall on it, too. I, I thought, <laughs> wow, I'm not sure how I'd feel about that if I lived there. It's a beautiful island, just uh, uh, 35 minutes by ferry from Seattle, and it's a suburban, really a suburban community. People commute every day to Seattle to work, but... I was there over Labor Day weekend, right. and it was overrun. Well, you should have come by. You know, we got a little cold beer in the fridge. I wish you'd known you'd been there. We would have shown you real I, I could have used it. Hospitality. Uh, I, I was walking all over the place <laughs> trying to find a place that I could get in to eat. So well, I you, come you recognized a beautiful place, as did Trudy it, it, and I. It is beautiful. And we went there. As and, is the trip to get there. Yeah, it is. It's a, little, it's a 35-minute ferry ride. And we went so there. So you still have a home there? Yeah. We mm-hmm. still get there, you know, a couple of weekends uh, a month, uh, the capital's in Olympia, an hour south. But spend a lot of time, and it is paradise. I mean, you get off the ferry boat and you've dropped into a little different dimension. It's not the twilight zone; it's the kind of a paradise zone. No, it and, is. And we it, love it. It is. It is. <laughs> um, what interests me is you. 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 You probably found a more hospitable environment for your views on issues like guns, for example, in your new district. Well, very much so. Uh, it was a swing district when I started there in 98. I ran against an incumbent Republican who was a six-year, well-established person. But uh, I believed we needed a change, and uh, so I jumped into the fray and won. Again, unexpectedly, there were only two incumbent Republicans beat that year. But uh, we made it happen because, again, I brought some conviction to the table. And it was a, it was a balancer swing district at the time. It's trended Democratic now since I've been there. Was there any question in your mind when you lost that congressional race uh, in 94? And we should point out a lot of people did. 94 was, a very, was the year that Newt Gingrich and the Republicans took over the House after 40 years. So it was – you were not alone. In your, I was in good company. In, Speaker Tom Foley was my seatmate. Another Maria Washingtonian. Cantwell, who's now a U.S. senator. So, yes, it did happen. But we— uh, So I've, did you say to yourself then, you know, someday I'm going to run again for something? It was in the back of my mind, but mostly surviving and feeding my precious three children uh, was the most important thing at, at the time. But uh, 
look, there's things that I feel passionately about, and by serving in public office, that's the best expression of that passion. I feel passionately about the environment of my state, which is now under siege. I feel passionately about the education of our kids, which Trudy and I got us into this business in the first place that I knew was underfunded and underserviced. Uh, I feel passionately about the justice that uh, we now uh, all feel. And I mentioned this DACA decision about when people who are vulnerable, who are abused by those in power. So, uh, you know, this is a place to express that and also do something for my community. So I have, win, lose, or draw, I have been uh, thrilled to to be in the public debate. We should point out that in between those two uh, uh, races, congressional races, um, you had a race for a governor in there. I did. It's no secret that I ran for governor in 1996. It just seemed like one at the time. (laughs) (laughs) I was vastly overmatched. I ran against an incumbent when no one else would. Then two sort of 800-pound gorillas got in the race, and, and we were toast. But met some good people who helped me later on. My chief of staff, Joby Shimomura, I met, who became my chief of staff and did a great job in Congress. So good things can come out of, of defeats. Uh, you uh, t- talk to me about um, the, uh, the difference between being a member of Congress and being the governor of a state. I mean, you, you, it's a vastly different responsibility. It's, it's the difference between, uh, you know— sitting on the couch watching a fairly interesting sitcom and uh, and making history you, you can't you can't really uh, overstate the difference uh, a governor can do more in an hour than a member of congress can in two or three years it's just the nature of the position uh, i was very active i'm proud of some of the things i did in congress i'm proud of the votes i took i'm proud of my work on the health care bill and what that accomplished i'm proud of my work on climate change but I've been able to do in an hour uh, more than I could in Congress. Uh, we've really moved the needle on climate change. We've done some great things on health care in my state with spectacular success. And that's been because of the powers that the governor has, and that's just the nature of the office. So it is a wildly much more productive uh, a position. That's not to diminish Congress. It's just the nature when there's 500. More than you imagined? Yes, probably more than I imagined uh, about the difference of the ability to actually uh, move the needle. So, uh, uh, you know, take climate change, for instance. So I worked day and night to pass climate change legislation. We got it through the House. The Senate stalled. um, And that was disappointing. But now I have been able to, through executive action, with the stroke of my pen, create a limitation on the amount of carbon pollution in the state of Washington. It's the only one in the United States that has been created by executive action. It's pursuant to our state clean air law. And I have been able to tell my citizens that we're putting a cap on the amount of carbon pollution that comes uh, out of our smokestacks and tailpipes. And that's a signal achievement, and it only happened because I had that executive authority to do that. We've been able to pass legislation. It's been a matter of litigation. Yes, it's litigation, and of course the fossil fuel industry is always going to try to overturn anything that would reduce carbon pollution. But we feel confident that we will prevail on this, but we've also had legislative successes. We've created a clean energy fund that helps businesses get going across the, you know, sort of... Uh, uh, Renewable energy. Renewable energy. So we have businesses all over the state of Washington that are putting people to work because I've been able to start this clean energy fund. Una Energy, a company, it's the leading manufacturer of giant batteries that you can integrate solar and wind energy into the grid because of it. 
Uh, SGL is the largest which is a huge. This fiber. is a huge thing because the ability to store energy is one of the great um, sort of um, missions of uh, of science right now. If you could store solar energy, for example, for longer periods of time, it's really the key to maximizing all renewable energy sources because almost all renewable energy sources are intermittent. Mm-hmm. So you've got a lot of energy when you can't use it. So storage really is uh, uh, the alpha and omega of research right now. Washington is leading the way both in energy companies and in research. We've also established a, a Clean Energy Research Institute at our colleges, which are turning out some gangbuster um, new developments, both in storage and integration. Uh, our companies are also specializing in development of software to be able to integrate renewable energy into the grid. So we see this as a huge economic growth opportunity for my state, and we have only been able to do that because I've been in the governor's office to be able to move that forward. I want to talk more about climate change uh, in in a bit here, but I I want to get your perspective on something else because you have the unique – you've had the unique unique opportunity of of watching the Congress through a really eventful – uh, period of time or uneventful. Well, uh, well, well, well. Exactly. I mean, that's related to my my question. But you, um, you know, that moment in '94 when uh, the the Gingrich Revolution mm-hmm. happened was a hinge moment in certain ways. And I'm wondering what what you've seen over the years in the way. Congress uh, works and doesn't work in the sort of partisanization of uh, of the process and the sort of acrimony uh, that we've seen uh, grow up over time. Yeah, I think we in our state uh, have been uh, at least partly successful avoiding uh, some of that acrimony. Uh, we had a bipartisan success in uh, in expanding Medicaid. But, uh, but talk instance. to me about Congress. I, I want to get. I, trust me, I'm going to get to what you're doing <laughs> in this state. You, I know you, you're eager to talk about. It. I don't blame you for being eager to talk about. It, but I, I, I really am asking you to, as a just someone who's observed this process right. and, and in certain ways has been buffeted by it. Well, I would say uh, the Gingrich in Washington, the Gingrich Revolution was damaging to the democratic institution of the U.S. Con- uh, Constitution, uh, Congress, and the reason is is that he saw uh, a, a weapon to drive disrespect for the United States Congress. He believed that the higher the disrespect number was for the U.S. Congress, the more likely it was that the, that the party in power, which was the Democratic Party at that time, would be thrown out. So since then, there has been sort of a, a, an industry built on belittling Congress and belittling the opposition and their motivations and their personal attributes, which has made it a more acidic environment. From a from a partisan standpoint, that when is, you first got there, did you feel uh, that there was an opportunity? From the time you got there to the time you left, did you have a better opportunity early on in that first brief go round to work with people across the aisle? Was there more of a sense of cooperation, or was that already changed? Uh, no, I mean uh, Bob Michaels and Tom Foley had a great working relationship. They uh, respected one another. They worked together. They tried their. They woke up in the morning trying to find a place for consensus, rather than waking up uh, in the morning trying to demean the motivations of, of the opponent. So yes, there was a very different culture that shifted in 1994. 
I have to tell you, though, it's painful even thinking about these terms, though, because I'm so focused on things in my state right now. It's even painful to I think know, about this archaeology. I, I, I can't have you sit here and not take advantage of your historical historical perspective on 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 this issue because it seems so important. It is. What, what, me, what about the what, what what how much of a role has sort of money and the the social media and the sort of organized uh, kind of on permanent campaign that we've seen, uh, how much has that done to sort of, as you say, acidify the the The, process? The enormous uh, mountains of cash that are now involved is clearly an insidious aspect of this whole process. The Citizens United case has made that perhaps 40% worse in part by making this money dark money. So at least we used to kind of know who's doing what and who's giving you the message. Now you have a message that, you know, claims that candidate X is, you know, kicks his dog routine and is sponsored by the Mothers for Milk. And it turns out it's the Agent Orange industry. So the Citizens United, I think, has been a significant event to actually make it a worse situation. That's why I'm hopeful we can find some solution to that. And uh, presumably associated uh uh, with that is the fear that uh, as we become a little more polarized, I mean, uh, let's take your your home district for example, has become much more democratic over time. As you as you point out, we've seen this sort of polarization where um, urban districts have become uh, more solidly yep. democrat, and rural districts have become mm-hmm. more solidly. Republican, mm-hmm. and as you know, as a former member of Congress, members sort of fear primaries more than they fear general elections. So there's two dynamics at work. One we can't do anything about, which is the geographical right. segregation sorting, yes, no. sorting that has gone out for interesting reasons that I don't fully understand. But the second reason we can do something about, and that's the gerrymandering, which is a cancer on democracy right now. And that's why I'm so dedicated. I'm going to be chair of the Democratic Governors Association next year and why I'm so committed to electing Democrat governors so that we can have one voice to prevent the gerrymandering that has made this much, much worse uh, a problem. And I'm committed to that. And thank goodness we got great races to elect Democratic governors. Yeah, I want to, let me take a quick break because I want to ask you, uh, ask you about that. We'll be right back with Governor Jay Inslee. What, what, tell me what you think the prospects are, because one of the things that has happened over the last decade, and I say this as someone who uh, was uh, a veteran of the Obama White House and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, Democratic politics during that period, mm-hmm. but there's, there was a great shift in the number of governorships, uh, and um, I, what, it was 17 now? Is that what you have, 17 yes. Democratic governors? Yes, yes. Uh, so wh- wh- how— a rope. How optimistic, I guess, are you about uh, next year and the opportunity to turn state houses? And where do you see the key races? Well, very optimistic for a variety of reasons. One, we've got spectacular candidates. We just we got sixty great candidates. Do you running. think more now post Trump? Yes. yes. Uh, Uncle Sam had "We Want You," and that was very successful in World War One, I, I believe. We have Donald Trump that. Point a finger to anybody with a conscience says, we want you to run for office. And they're doing it. And they're running big time. Phil Murphy, New Jersey, is going to win. Ralph Northrup, tremendous candidate. These are races Virginia, this year. These are governor races this year, which I think we have every prospect of winning. 
We have great candidates in Nevada and New Mexico. We're going to have great candidates in Florida and Ohio and Michigan. So these are all places that are very winnable for us. And you cannot overstate the impact of uh, having a narcissistic, unstable person in the White House that is a cry in the dark for people to come to the aid of their country. And I think people now feel that sense of crisis where you've got to go to the fire line and fight the fire. Uh, you grab a bucket and you start you start throwing water on the fire. And you, you have that sense across America. And it is a legitimate one, given the risk of this president to the country. And it is one that's felt in red and blue and, and swing districts across the country. And I can tell you we've never seen such a great crop of people with such credibility and expertise and passion than right now. And we had, you know, we had 140,000 people in pink hats marching here and a cold day in January. And that's that's being, I believe... Uh, welded into a, a really unstoppable force. I believe that that's out there. Now, who knows what will happen between now and then. But as of right right now, uh, we have a very highly motivated group of people with quality folks to lead them, and I'm excited about it. Two questions about it. Uh, one is, are you concerned, is it possible to have so many that you have kind of vituperative primaries uh, with uncertain results, so you don't necessarily end up with the best general election candidates, uh, you, but you get the candidates who have the most committed activist base within the party. Well, Democrats, we can't even spell vituperative, so we don't worry about it. But no, I, I don't. thought you were going to say we can't have an orderly process. <laughs> No, I, I don't fear that. I, I've won. I've been in primaries that have been highly contested and, and, and found won them. some and lost some. So won some and lost some. So I, I, really, I really don't fear that. Uh, you know, what I fear is, frankly, this president doing something so uh, unguarded and unscripted because, you know, starting a war through a tweet that could change the political situation. I do worry about that, given the instability uh, of the president. I'm hopeful that those around him can rein him in. Although well, let me that ask you about that. Totally. It's a, you raise an interesting point. Uh, I mean, are you suggesting that uh, that he would do that? That he would that he sees some political profit in uh, inflating uh, the say the situation with North Korea? What I can say is that the level of instability, the level of unpredictability, the level of deceit and just outright lies on a daily basis. Does and I know it, you mean this in the nicest way. Does, yes, I'm saying with all due respect. <laughs> uh, exposes us to having those concerns. I, I don't have any evidence that that's the case right now, but it exposes us to having those concerns when you understand that the wrong word or language from the most powerful position in the world can cause others to misperceive our intentions. And so that is a legitimate concern that I think many of us have. That's enough to inspire all of us to go to the ballot box, to run for office, and to go find your best candidate to go support him this year. And we all got to be motivated because we got to do what we can do to right this ship. And I'm hopeful that everyone will do that. Second, one, The second question I wanted to ask you about this, and this will fall heavily on you as head of the Governor's Association, uh, is the question of money and resources uh, and uh, uh, you know, the, one of the things that the Republican Party has done so successfully over the last uh, uh, decade in particular is mobilize this money, uh, dark money as well as not mm -hmm. dark money, uh, on behalf of their candidates. And we've seen in the first part of this year, with all of this enthusiasm, 
still a deficit between the parties where Republicans are raising more money than Democrats. Are you concerned that your candidates uh, may fall prey to that? Well, uh, the Republicans are going to spend more money than we do. That's just a fact of life. It was written in the evolutionary script, I suppose, and you just got to live with that. But I'm confident our candidates will be adequately funded, in part because we're so dedicated to this task. Look, we have understood that electing Democratic governors is not, not just important for our states, but is now important to unlock the U.S. House of Representatives by stopping the gerrymandering that has so poisoned that, that body politic. And so we now are educating our donors, and because of this, I think we've doubled our individual contribution level from individual donors since I've been vice chair of the DGA. We're going to continue to build that. People are responding. I've been flying around the country when I can spare a moment from my duties as governor talking to these donors who have been very active in Senate, U.S. Senate races or U.S. House races but heretofore have not been in the governor's races. They are now getting engaged because they understand the fundamental uh, pivot we have to make to win these state house races. Look, we were asleep at the switch for 10 years, myself included to some degree. I, we, we were playing in house races, Senate races, mm-hmm. but we have not been adequately funding state legislative races. I couldn't agree more. Mayor's no, races, that's been a real governor's races, and, and, and the Koch brothers have been, frankly, 10 years ahead of us. Yes. But we are catching up very rapidly, yes. and, and the organization I lead is going to be fundamental to that effort. You, maybe you need some oligarchs. <laughs> that seems to be uh, that seems to be a, an important ingredient in this uh, in this whole process. You, you mentioned that you need to win uh, governorships uh, to stop this gerrymandering, but uh, presumably Democratic governors would want uh, would want maps that are hospitable to Democrats as well. I only say that because anybody who's listening is going to say, well, are, are Republicans the only ones who gerrymander? I, you know, I, no, I'm, I'm sure that the Democrats have been involved in that process as well. But if you look at the maps right now, where if you distributed the votes equally, the Democrats would have 20 to 26 more seats. It's clear that the gerrymandering has much been, been much more, quote, successful on the Republican side. So we'd have to go a long ways even to write Part this Part of the ship. problem, of course, is that, you, you know, as we spoke earlier, Democrats tend to be uh, more co- aggregated around urban areas. And so there, there's much more density of Democrats, uh, rural areas, uh, less right. density. But it's another reason why we have to be so dedicated to stop this gerrymandering, which is a, a pathology right now, uh, stopping democracy in the U.S. House of, of Representatives. But I'm convinced that we can do that. Now, we also have some uh, – the judicial system is involved here too. Uh, there's some been appellate cases that have accepted review. Yeah. I believe Supreme it's Wisconsin and the Supreme yeah. Court. That could be a game changer in this situation. But whatever situation, every whatever uh, uh, band-aid we can put on this, we need to do it, and electing governors is one of them. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you were sort of raised in an environment uh, that uh, prized conservation, that prized natural resources. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not an, uh, an issue that you've come to late in life. It's a birthright uh, mm-hmm. of yours, and you've made – you, you started talking about it earlier. I couldn't stop you. Uh, you've made climate change uh, uh, in, uh, a central issue of your, uh, of your governorship. Um, talk a little bit about broadly where you think we are and uh, your observations uh, on what the administration is doing. 
Well, maybe I can just stop with a summary and then I'll get to the why I believe this. I, I think we need to make uh, defeating climate change, defeating ocean acidification, which is the twin, uh, evil twin of climate change because carbon is acidifying our water. It's 30% more acidic than it was in pre-industrial times. So doing those two things, I believe, has to be a central fundamental priority for the United States of America and every state in the country. And the reason is, is it exposes us to an existential threat of having a place to live which is markedly diminished for the future of our kids. Now, here's why well, I let say me, this. Can I just stop you for a second? Yeah. We just went through this horrific storm mm-hmm. in Texas, and there's another one as we speak potentially heading toward right. Florida. Do you, uh, do you believe that the extremity of that storm is a consequence of, of climate change? I think it is likely that these hurricanes are more intense from a a dual dynamic of increased evaporation from warmer water. The water is much warmer than it has historically been. So you put more water into the atmosphere because of the warmer water. But then the atmosphere is also capable of essentially adding freight cars to the train full of water. It's capable of holding more water when it's warmer. So you get these deluges. And we are not just experiencing this in the South. We've had a new record deluge, these rainstorms of unprecedented dimension in Washington State. Mount Rainier International Park was closed about five years ago because the rain just essentially destroyed uh, many of the glaciers tumbled down and carved out new canyons, if you will, on the, on the shoulders of Mount Rainier. This is a worldwide phenomenon. So I think it's fair to say that, in, that our rainstorms are becoming more intense because of both increased temperatures in the water and additional carrying capacity of the atmosphere. And frankly, it is not necessary for us to decide whether that is increase is 0.2% or 15%. Mm-hmm. What is necessary to know that it's bad enough to necessitate bold, aggressive, creative, economy-growing action to defeat these twin evils, and that's what I'm engaged in in my state. Now, this is very personal to me. Because uh, I, you mentioned this, Washington's a birthright. The things I treasure about my state, the alpine meadows that my parents grew up restoring. Right. They obviously um, taught you the, some values the, the, relative the to the this. The snow that I've grown up skiing on, the water that we've, we've grown the best oysters in the world on. Look, they've had to move the oyster growing operations in Washington state because of acidic ocean conditions caused by carbon dioxide. So I have three kids. I have three grandchildren. I love taking them down to the beach, and I hate the thought of them turning over a rock someday and nothing being there. No salmon, no oysters, uh, no forests. Right now, the window right behind you, when I look out here, I can see ash on the, on the car roofs because of the forest fires that are now devastating my state. And the reason they're devastating my state is that the combined forces of drought and heat and wind and beetle kill, which is in part precipitated by, by the fact that our winters are not cold enough to kill the larvae during the winter cycle, they're devastating my forests. So I'm 66 years of age. I've lived here pretty much my whole life. I've never seen Still ash. athletic, I can see that. <laughs> Competitive, if not athletic. <laughs> Just competitive. I, I kept that part. Um, I've never seen this. So this is something that's never happened in my lifetime in Seattle, Washington, to be have a shower of ash. You went to a wedding yesterday. You said it was a brilliant sunset. Yeah, it was apocalyptic because it was so orange through the yes. through the smoke. 
So we are seeing in real time a slow motion disaster movie that we are now living through that is not hypothetical, and we have a climate denier in the White House. So I am very passionate about this subject, and I think rightfully so. And the beauty of this, and I think there is an underlying beauty to this, is that we have, I believe, one of the greatest economic possibilities the United States has ever had, and certainly my state. We are growing jobs like crazy in my state because we've embraced a clean energy economy. CNBC just listed mine as the best state to do business in the whole United States. We've created 340,000 jobs. We've had double the GDP of the national average, in part because we focused on clean energy job creation. We make carbon for electric cars. We make solar panels. We make the heart of solar panels. We make software to integrate renewable energy. We're we're beating uh, a problem into plowshares, if you will, by creating jobs around this, uh, this challenge. So it is both a moral responsibility. It is a personal uh, passion that I have. You're not going to come into my state and damage my state where my grandkids live without a fight. That's how I feel about this. And third, it's just a tremendous economic uh, uh, opportunity for my state. And I wrote about this seven years ago. I wrote a little book about that only Trudy and I read, but it was just, uh, it's been proven to be accurate because we're creating so many jobs ar- around this subject. Do you. Um you mentioned the uh, climate denier in the White House. What about at the EPA and Scott Pruitt uh, and some of the steps that he's taken there? Have they impacted on your state? Well, I, I wouldn't say yet, but he certainly has sent uh, warning signs where he's essentially, uh, at one time or another, reduced the ability to have access to scientific information that taxpayers paid for, by the way. It seems to me if taxpayers pay for it, we should have access to climate science available to us. Uh, he has uh, clearly, uh, you know, rolled back the Obama administration rules, uh, the, the clean energy rule to reduce carbon from coal. Uh, he has, I'm sure, part of the cabal that refused to join the whole rest of the nation, uh, the, of the nations of the world in Paris to commit to action. He certainly has not helped in any way. So I, I can't think of a positive thing to say that, that the EPA uh, uh, has done to help in, in this regard. And, and pulling out of this Paris Agreement, you, you couldn't think of, of anything more uh, sort of backward-leaning. Uh, and and uh, I can't think of sort of a more un-American thing. We've always led the world. We led the world against fascism and communism. The whole world has looked to us for leadership as the last bastion of liberty. We've led the world in scientific achievement. We're one of the most economically rich countries in the world, and yet to be at the very back, the caboose, not even on the caboose of the international train, is an international embarrassment and an environmental um, uh, disaster in the making if we don't reverse this course. So I believe all of us has to be dedicated to this. As I've indicated, my state is, and we've had some great successes, and I intend to continue that. And every time a state has success, other states become a little more emboldened do to do good things. That, um, do you think that the movement that the Paris Agreement reflected can be reversed? Or do you think that there's enough momentum globally for this? And also, do you think it seems as if China and other <clears throat> countries are going to step in the breach here if America surrenders leadership. Well, the good news is, and I think this is very telling, there wasn't a single country that ran up the white flag of surrender with with Donald Trump to climate change. They all 
reaffirm their commitment within probably hours of the president going south on this. So that's the good news. But we're losing an economic opportunity. Look, China is stepping into the gap. They're building, you know, solar technologies like crazy. They're establishing relationships with businesses around the world doing this. So we don't want to take a back seat in in what will be the largest economic uh, transition since the transition from the steam engine to the internal combustion engine. And when there are transitions like that, America should lead, not follow, and we should seize these economic opportunities. This was built for us. This challenge was made for America because Americans blossom and thrive when we exhibit optimism and innovation and entrepreneurial talent. So this is a kind of problem that is in our wheelhouse. It was designed for Americans to solve if we have the right message and leadership. And uh, I hope we get it soon. We're going to take another short break, and we'll be back with Governor Jay Inslee. Another issue that's come to the fore, and you mentioned it earlier, is DACA and what we do about these young people uh, who are the children of undocumented uh, immigrants uh, and through no fault of their own now find themselves in this no-man's land uh, and under threat of being returned to countries they never knew mm-hmm. uh, because of the uh, decision of the administration to end the, the uh, Obama order. Um, wh- what, is the, what are the implications of that decision, and how likely do you think it is that Congress will, in fact, step in and deal with this problem? Well, I think the injustice, the innate inhumanity, the lack of empathy uh, shown by the president in this case uh, speaks for itself. It's difficult to think uh, of how uh, duplicitous uh, the president has been where uh, essentially we offered these dreamers an opportunity that if you step forward and share your name and your address and say you're going to go to school and keep your nose clean and We'll make sure you continue building the American dream here. And then to pull the rug out from under them after Uncle Sam has told them they're going to do that, the uh, injustice of that is palpable. And and the human – I've had this experience because we, we worked for years to pass our version of the DREAM Act in Washington State. And this was a bill that would give these dreamers um, financial aid like people who were born in Washington State. And we worked for years on this, and the Republicans were not helpful for – some period of time. But then we had several hundred of these dreamers come down to Olympia and really talk to legislators, and I went to some of those meetings. When these young people look at you in the eye and you see the spark of ambition in their future, it something something shines in your heart if you have one, say, I gotta help this person. And I saw that. We so we passed on a bipartisan basis our Dream Act so they can make sure that they get financial aid. That is now threatened because the president wants to take that right away from them now to start he, with. Now so he, yeah. there's a there's a basic injustice. But I want to answer your question too. It's also incredibly dumb economically. Uh, I had breakfast just before I came here, Trudy and I. A fellow named uh, Howard Behart came up, he's former uh, CEO of Starbucks. He says, what can I do to stop this? This is crazy. I have five kids working for kids. They're probably 30, 20-year-olds who are doing great work for my company, and now they can't continue to work. This is really stupid. And that's been a very widespread reaction from the business community. Right. So economically, it's a mistake. It reduces GDP. It's unjust. Now, the question is, will Congress actually act? I don't know. I just don't know the answer to that. You've seen, you know, Speaker Ryan uh, put out a statement today that seemed 
that that urged uh, action. The president himself, you know, he's not shy about appearing in front of cameras, but he sent the attorney general out to announce this decision and then followed up with a statement urging Congress to do something for these uh, kids. Uh, The question is, uh, can that happen? And the other question is, is there legal recourse? Uh, now, your attorney general in this state has said that he's going to sue. Uh, you're, a, you're a lawyer. Uh, do you feel like there are grounds here? To- I think there may be grounds uh, on the lack of procedural compliance with changing the executive order, but I don't have the full briefing on it yet. I've urged our attorney general to bring a legal action if we have grounds to do so. He's indicated he wants to go in that direction. And whether or not that's successful, we need Congress to act. But by the way, I can't help but comment on the on the cowardly lion who wouldn't stand up there at a microphone who said he wanted to have a great heart. That was his language, that he had a great heart for these dreamers. And wouldn't stand up and at least stand up for what he's done to these poor kids. That's disgraceful. Uh, from the tweeter-in-chief to not be willing to stand up there and tell Americans what he's doing to them is just is, is morally offensive to me. And his cynicism on this, because he wants to tell his base, look, I got rid of the dreamers, and tell the dreamers that I'm taking care of you because I help, you know, I'll let Congress take care of them. You can't think, he should win a Nobel Prize for cynicism on this thing. So we'll see. You don't we'll think see. he just felt he was overexposed and wanted to give other people a chance? Well, there is could be a raging attack of humility that came through <laughs> like the Zika virus or something, but uh, probably yeah. not. <laughs> and and what do you think there'll be an organized effort on the part of governors uh, to uh, to to uh, impact on this? Yes, and it already has. I've uh, worked with some of my other governors. We've written letters in this regard. Uh, I was on a press call, national press call here last week with uh, a bunch of our colleagues. So we're going to do all we can, and we'll hope that. You know, Congress will act, but you can be assured that Congress will, the Republicans will try to blackmail dreamers by holding them hostage to, you know, tax rates or the wall or some other thing. You can be confident they will make that effort. That's not acceptable. These people's dreams should not be, uh, have an anchor tied around their necks with with that type of of politicking. So I hope that that's not the case. You voted for the Affordable Care Act. Um, Do you... uh, and and now we are where we are. Congress has rejected the repeal and replace, uh, move for now. Uh, and you have a situation where these health care exchanges have been uh, jeopardized by, by administration uh, policy. How serious a problem has that been uh, here in Washington? And uh, what, what uh, I know Patty Murray is working on this. Uh, what do you need to see happen uh, to sustain your Exchanges. Well, before I answer that, I, I do want to say something. I want to thank the two great leaders that helped this massive step forward for health care of the people in my state. That's Barack Obama and David Axelrod. I want to thank you, what you did on this bill. You won't remember this, but when our caucus was wavering on this, when Scott Brown won the Senate race, you came and helped us right the ship to make sure people would have the courage to get this done. I want to thank you for your efforts on my this. My recollection was I came and got my butt kicked by <laughs> yeah. people who were very anxious. It was but very I was, useful. Listen, I, I played a very small role, but I didn't have to cast <laughs> courageous votes. So No, but I say that because people do forget all of the people who are not in elected office who were pivotal to the success. And you played, you did play an important role in this. I want to thank you for that. Yeah. So we should my, also remember the people who aren't in elective office today be, 
be, because in part of that. because they cut because cast of those that. votes. And there are many of them, yeah. unfortunately. So in answer to what, is, what has meant in my state, this has been supremely successful in my state, 750,000 people with insurance. Cut your un, uninsured rate we Cut our half. insurance rates by almost two-thirds, actually. Mm-hmm. And it has cut the um, – this is the, the story that's not told. It's cut the medical inflation rate probably in half because the, the cost of this is what's been – making this inaccessible to many people. We've actually cut the medical inflation rate by a combination of using preventative care and integrating mental and physical health mm-hmm. and buying v- value rather than volume. We're doing all those things. Yeah. And we've really had All a spe- reforms that were embedded in this. All things that were enhanced wow. yeah. by, by Obamacare. So we've had great, great success on this. We've had less problems with fragility and instability in the market than some other states, in part because we've done these, frankly, smart things which have reduced the rate of medical inflation. So that's made our instability in the market less. It is true that less. it has worked better in the states where the states were invested it's in not, making it a success. It's not surprising that yeah. if you actually like your car and you want to keep air in the tires, it'll, that it'll, it'll drive better. And that's been the case. The states that have embraced I it, make a note of that. wanted it to work. <laughs> I go home and pump my tires up. <laughs> yeah, well, that helps your <laughs> mileage, by the way. Okay. So, uh, um, so it's not a surprise that states have been really positive about this, have had success, and we have. Uh, Now, we still have, because the president and to some degree Congress has threatened the subsidization of the the market, that has created instability. I'm hopeful that with Patty Murray's leadership and Lamar Alexander's, we can get some more stability in that market. I think that will help. We did that at one time when county was jeopardized. Our great work by Mike Kreidler uh, stabilized that. All our counties now have some coverage. But I think basically to have a bipartisan uh, effort to give a more stability to that subsidization program, that will help some of these states that have had bad, uh, less beneficial outcomes than we have. But look, this means that we can continue this ball rolling. We're not done with health care yet. There's still things to look at, public options, ability to buy into you know Medicare or some like. There's still things we can do on health care. We're not done. But you can't overstate. There's been, think about it, there's been 60,000 people in my state who have had treatment for their cancer because of this bill. And it has been a, an earth-shaking development in the private lives of thou- hundreds of thousands of people in my state. Um, I, can't, uh, I can't let you go without mentioning the fact that in addition to the smell of ash as I walked the streets of uh, Seattle, there was the... Uh, there was the unmistakable smell of weed, mar- <laughs> marijuana. And now partly there was a music festival in town this weekend. So I, um, uh, I'm sure there was some association uh, with that. But, uh, you know, Washington has taken a, uh, a stand on this, on legalization. How is that working out? The good news is there is no evidence that a uh, smoldering roach started any of these forest fires. So that's good yeah. news. We haven't had that problem. I think the evidence has been uh, that it is uh, that has not experienced some of the downsides that people were concerned about. Um, the most recent— I, Were you a supporter of this? No, I did not support it. I had some concerns about youthful use, and mm-hmm. was that going to increase youthful use of marijuana? A uh, report came out just two days ago that said there has been no evidence that there's been an increased youthful use of marijuana and a pretty sophisticated instrument trying to figure that out. So that's good news. We've had no no market criminality associated with the market. 
We've had a very well-regulated uh, uh, market for, from a consumer standpoint to make sure people get a safe, you know, a quality product, if you will. That's been very successful, even in the absence of FDA help. Uh, it's generated revenues in the hundreds of millions of dollars uh, yeah. to help the state budget, including our schools. More than like. in, in the state of Colorado. I, I think. think I think that that's true. Yeah. So from all sort of objective uh, measures, uh, the, the, the concerns of those, including myself, have not come to pass, and, uh, and, and it, it is being used on a legal basis. So uh, I would share that experience. We've offered to share that with Attorney General Sessions on multiple occasions and asked to meet with him, to talk with him about this, to just tell him what's happened. He has not uh, graced us with that. He sent us a letter that had this information from the from you know the 1930s in it that just disclosed that he really had not looked at the most recent information about this. And if he will, and the administration will stop looking at this from an ideological lens and just objectively assess what has gone on, I think they would conclude that this has reduced the the uh, the load on law enforcement. It has uh, not increased youthful uh, usage, and to some degree, uh, this is to some degree. Look at this as a freedom issue of people now are enjoying what they experience. Now, um, uh, so we hope that the administration will not take this on as another war, and they'll look at the objective evidence on this. Have I you seen evidence? Too, have you seen evidence that they they are going to do that? There's been some saber rattling about uh, it. But. Well, there's been a lot of saber rattling from this president that has not come to pass. We hope this will just be one more evidence of that. I think there's some reason to be optimistic that this will not be turned into a political war. I may also note that, look, this is the way the tides of history are moving. And one of the really interesting things to me um, is how fast the culture can change. So overnight, uh, marriage equality Mm -hmm. went from something that, you know, five years ago was looked at a very askance. It, to some degree, even in my state, to something that's totally accepted that is today a non-issue. Um, uh, in my state, what was a, a crime, marijuana usage, you know, five years ago, and we had enormous law enforcement resources dedicated to it, is now pretty much a non-issue. Uh, there's some jokes about it, but there's really no meaningful effort to roll this back. And it's law enforcement... Uh do you hear from law enforcement on this issue? No, I really don't. I, I really do not. Uh, I just have not heard this a, a, as an issue, in part because it's a priority issue. Look, we got we still got problems with homicides and residential burglaries, and and uh, no. What I meant what is, do they feel? Have you heard anything positive about being relieved of that burden? Marginally. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, what I would describe it as mostly as a non-issue, and, no. and I think what I what I would say is to the to the administration is, look, the tides of history are moving towards more equality, more openness. You are now on the wrong side of the tides of history by banning transgendered people from the military. That is a backwards approach. And you are on the wrong side of history if you want to go back and try to put marijuana back in this verboten bottle and, and, and make it a crime again. You're just on the wrong side of history. The culture and the community is moving in these directions. And in my state, they have been successful on both of those regards. And I, and we haven't talked about this. And, you know, we, we are a very welcoming state. We're welcoming people of whatever gender, whatever orientation. We welcome refugees. That's why I ran down the airport when I heard that the president was going to bar refugees. I went to SeaTac right away. Yes. I'm proud that our state was one of the first, if not the first, to, to win in law in a lawsuit against this 
administration. And I think it's just another indication that they're going the wrong way regarding the, Have you the had future. O- the, has the opioid issue impacted on you? Yes. It is a tragedy. It is omnipresent. It is throughout all uh, economic and geographic areas in my state. I know per- people personally, a, a young man from my neighborhood, I just heard a few days ago, lost his life to opioid um, uh, exposure. So it is something that touches all of our families. And we have a fairly vigorous initiative on our state. I started about eight months ago, which combines uh, a really good educational program for physicians to try to prevent folks who end up yeah, addicted these things from are their medical. Well, there's been a large overprescription problem. We're doing much better on that. But we're also doing a better job helping our medical community be more successful in treating opioid addiction when it does uh, uh, sink its, its teeth into people. And we have a hotline we've established. We're doing some good things. We have a drug take-back program where we're trying to get these, these painkillers out of grandma and grandpa's shelves where kids get access to them and they end up on the street. We're trying to get those turned back to law enforcement so there's not a lot, too many opioids out on the street. But obviously, we're not winning this battle at the moment, yeah. and it is a huge, huge personal Nor any of the other states. Well, we're, we're not alone, unfortunately. Yeah. I, I, I would be remiss if I let you go without asking you uh, the question I guess every Democrat has to answer, which is uh, about 2020. I, I often say that it's easier to put a list together of Democrats who aren't thinking of running for president than to put together a list of Democrats who are because it's so lengthy. Right. Uh, but your name has surfaced, and it's surfaced for a variety of reasons. One is the record that you've amassed here in Washington, your leadership on this climate change issue, and the fact that governors traditionally have been a wellspring of candidacies for president because it's an executive office and it's a preparation for an executive uh, office. So having with all of that, uh, what say you? Uh, it's, it's just too early to think about this. And uh, what I've thought about is we do need a candidate who will make climate change front and center a foundational priority for the United States. I do believe that. I do know that. But it's just too early to think about And if there office. were no such – if you didn't see that kind of candidacy, would that provoke you to think more seriously about it? I am a well-disciplined person who does not answer those kind of questions from insightful Chicago. Well, that's the first, that's the first uh, <laughs> lesson, I guess, of presidential politics Discipline. is the uh, is sophisticated evasion techniques. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So uh, you're on your I'm, way. I'm meeting the best. <laughs> Governor Jay Inslee, it's been great to be with Thank you. you. Thank Thanks you. Thank you so much. for spreading the gospel. All right. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.